Good morning, my name is Chris, I'm one of the pastors here. We're nothing if not punctual, so that 60 seconds is done, and now we're ready for 60 minutes of intense Bible teaching. We're not going that long, don't worry. Um, Well again, good morning. Uh, Glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, We are continuing our series on the book of Judges uh, that we've called Still Unfaithful. And for the month of October, uh, we've been focusing on uh, the life of a man named Samson that some of us are familiar with, some not. Uh, In many ways, his life is kind of patterned after that of John the Baptist uh, and even Jesus in some sense. And we saw that as the story began, that we saw that he was a child of promise who was to be set apart with what the Bible describes as a Nazarite vow where he would not um, drink uh, alcohol, he would not touch anything unclean, he would grow out his hair, and he would be devoted to the Lord. And we also saw last week that he had a specific call to deliver God's people from sin and from oppression. And in this case, the sin and the oppression is, is characterized or is manifest in a people called the Philistines, who we found out last week were ultimately Egyptians. The, the difference between Samson and Jesus, though, is that he's still an imperfect man. He's broken, and yet God is still able to use him for his purpose. So it's a, it's a really cool deal. Uh, last week, we were in chapter 14 of Judges. This week, we'll be in 15. And we saw last week that Samson really began his ministry, so to speak, in a very unorthodox way. He actually starts his ministry by breaking the law. He goes down from, from uh, an Israelite town to um, a Philistine city called Timnah. that was kind of like an a, 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 um, uh, Israelite uh, uh, Las Vegas. And he goes there and he finds a woman. It comes back to his parents and says, hey, I'm going to marry one of the showgirls from Timnah. Um, can you set that up for me? And they're a little confused because that's unorthodox, not typically how we send out men uh, to do ministry. Um, and so they're confused. And so they, they, they do uh, go along with Samson, they, they arrange this wedding, and there's this week-long wedding ceremony uh, that was undoubtedly, um, you know, like, a, like an ancient frat party, and so he's probably breaking the law in some sense there as well. So he's, he's marrying a woman that's outside of his tribe, breaking the law, he's probably uh, drinking quite a bit, which is outside of the law, and he starts the feast, though, with giving a riddle to these 30 Philistine bodyguards that have kind of come to make sure everything, you know, stays, stays uh, um, you know, in the way that they want it. And, and he, he gives them this riddle that is about a lion and about honey. And in some sense, the whole riddle is designed to mock their Egyptian gods. And so um, the Philistines are not having this at all. They go to uh, Samson's wife and his father-in-law and say, if you don't get your husband to give over the secret and lose the bet, we are going to barbecue your entire family. And so she begins a week long of nagging Samson at this party. And like any man, after a week of his wife nagging at a party, he relents and gives over the secret. And so in some sense, Samson is is also like Jesus in that Samson trusted his wife as Jesus trusted his disciples, and he was ultimately betrayed by somebody very close to him. And so Samson uh, goes, and he goes to the Philistine capital, and he actually kills 30 other Philistines to take their clothes and deliver on his part of the bet to the 30 guys that were at the wedding. And the the wedding just kind of deteriorates. The father-in-law just assumes that Samson hates um, the bride and actually gives the bride to Samson's best man. 
Samson, uh, you know, like I said, he's attacked the Philistines, and he just goes home to live with mom and dad in a huff. And the whole thing just kind of degenerates into this kind of reality show wedding at the end of chapter 14. And so um, at the same time, though, Samson's gone. Best man gets a, gets a new wife. Philistines get their, their bet uh, taken care of. And so in some sense, there's this idea of, okay, everything's quiet. Everything's good. It's all settled. And then we get to chapter 15. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and we're going to spend our time kind of breaking down each little episode through here and, 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 and get out of here. So chapter 15. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. Good dad. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timonite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come to bind Samson as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourself. They said, No, we'll only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then... The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put it uh, out his hand, and took it. And with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, "With With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he'd finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth Lehi. He was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and he said, You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. And he, and when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name was called El Hickory. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 
years. This is one of these chapters of the Old Testament that I just love because there is so much going on. I, when I, Sam assigned the text and we were breaking this out, I was so geeked out because I get to deal with some really exciting stuff. And at the same time, there's also some very real and personal challenges uh, in here. So like I said, we're just going to work our way through the story. So we've, we've he got married. Samson is now back at home and he spent the entire spring living in mom and dad's basement. Okay, he's getting a little frustrated, a little lonely. It's not good for man to be alone in mom and dad's basement, right? And so he remembers, hey, I'm, I'm married. I don't have to live in mom and dad's basement. So he, he goes back down to his in-law's place in Timnah. And he knocks on the door. And he's there standing on the door, and he's holding a young goat, right? No flowers, no, uh, no mixed tape, no anything like that. He's got a young goat to try to woo back his wife. And he's, he's clearly forgiven her. Because he, he's forgot her, her, her uh, past trespass, because the only thing he's thinking about right now is some good old-fashioned make-up marital bliss. Okay, that's what he's got a hankering for. So he's there, and the father-in-law says, whoa there, cowboy, we've, we've got a problem. See, I gave your wife to your best man because I thought you hated her, but she's got a sister. And he's like, yeah, I'm not interested in the sister. Samson just storms off. And again, things kind of look like they're going to settle down again. Best man gets a wife. Samson's gone. But he's, he's angry. right? He's enraged. Um, even though his, his marriage has lasted uh, just shorter than your average Kardashian-length wedding, um, he's a little upset. And so he goes and he plots his revenge. And I want to be clear, even by pagan Philistine standards, Samson has not been a great husband by any stretch, but from the perspective of the author, from Samson's perspective, and certainly from the perspective of the Philistines, this was a legal wedding. The law has been violated, and and Samson says that he's justified. It's personal this time, Um, and so he plots revenge. He takes his time trapping um, what the, the text says is 300 foxes. The word can also be jackals. I think jackals sound funnier than foxes, but, you know, whatever one works for you. And, and he takes these foxes, ties torches to them, and, and in some sense he's creating organic, locally sourced artisan napalm. Okay? And so he, he uses that. And he releases um, all these animals. And, and I just, I wish there was a Samson movie that, like, Ridley Scott did or someone, like, like it's Gladiator, because this would be an awesome scene. Just wrap your head around screaming jackals or screaming foxes running through fields and then just orchards and fields just up in flames. It would be impressive. It would be intense. The fire, the smoke would probably fill the whole land like the, like the fires in eastern Washington did just last month. It would be impressive. It would be, be frightening in some sense. And so what Samson has done is he's not just attacked the Philistines, but he's, he's harmed them economically and he's harmed them militarily. He's actually weakened Israel's oppressors. See, there's not going to be any bread or any wheat or any olive oil at the Philistine co-op anymore. Okay? So they're going to have to use their money to buy bread, to buy olive oil, to buy food. And they can't use their money anymore for the, uh, for the military to oppress Israel. They're going to be weak. And so this may seem like a bit of an overreaction for a bad divorce. But I want you to hold this in your head and be really clear this morning that as challenging as Samson is, 
The Philistines are the bad guys. They have been oppressing Israel, God's people, for over 40 years. And Samson has been sent for a purpose, even married to a Philistine woman, for the purpose of redeeming and rescuing God's people from this oppression and this slavery. And so if the wedding debacle last chapter was, was uh, kind of the commencement of a family feud, with Samson torching the fields, we are in full-scale guerrilla warfare, okay? And, and, and again, you think that things might be over, but, but what Samson starts is a cycle of violence that we see in verse 16, the Philistines just start fighting fire with fire. They go ahead and make good, actually, on their threat from chapter 14, to, to barbecue Samson's wife and family. And so what's ironic about that is the whole reason she betrayed Samson last week was to avoid this fate. And yet, in her unfaithfulness, she still, her and her family, suffered a, a horrible fate. As well, we're clear in the story, too, that, that the Philistines know Samson's the one that did this. So in some sense, the Philistines are cowards, because Samson is formidable. Samson's already beat up and killed 30 of their guys before. So they're like, no, forget Samson. Let's just go attack an old man and, and his daughters. And in doing so, they're just punishing him for letting that whole Samson issue get out of hand. So they underestimate Samson's commitment to his wife. Right? It wasn't a good-looking marriage. Assume Samson's not going to be upset. Um, they assume that this would settle the conflict. All right, you burn our fields, we'll burn your wife, we're done. But the violence just continues. It just, it just gets worse and worse. And so Samson, and it's what, ironic is as I was preparing this message, I'm listening to Pandora, and, and the Braveheart theme actually comes on as I'm writing this section. Right? If you don't know the story of Braveheart, the British, big, bad, evil, oppressive British come by and they torch um, Braveheart's wife. And Braveheart, you know, goes Braveheart on him for the whole rest of the movie. So, so I'm listening to that as this happens. So Samson, in all of his Mel Gibson-ness, comes and, and he, he says he's going to be avenged. He is going uh, to declare war on the Philistines. And, and the word avenge isn't just a personal vengeance, but it's actually a lawful reprisal. What that means is Samson's not just upset, he is actually seeking justice. What happened to his wife is wrong. What's been happening to God's people is wrong, and he wants to come with with justice. And so um, he says as well that he's going to slaughter a few of them, eye for an eye, kind of, and then he's going to quit. So again, we're desperately seeking resolution. It's not going to come because we're only halfway through the story. See, violence always begets more violence unless there's some true peace that comes from true victory. Samson has not been victorious yet over the Philistines. He's only sought to enrage them at this point. He's stirred up a hornet's nest. And so he slaughters a a few guys, um, and then uh, he retreats. Because the Philistines are mad now, and he runs, and he runs um, all the way to, to Judah's land. God's land, Israel's, Israel's land. He's now surrounded by God's people, and yet he's pulling a, a Saddam Hussein, and he's holed up in a spider hole. Okay? But he thinks he's safe. And in some sense, he should be, because he's now surrounded by God's people. And this is the point in the story, starting in verse 9, where we get introduced to the people of Judah. God's people. We see that the Philistines march into Judah. They attack a small town called Lehi, and they demand... Two 
God's people to Judah that Samson be delivered to them. And usually, this is the part of the story where, where you see after God's deliverer has come and he starts a fight with the bad guys, that God's people respond. And they rally behind the deliverer and they fight for their freedom and they overthrow the oppressors and there's peace and there's healing throughout the land. And this is, this is the cycle of Judges. This is the cycle we've seen over and over and over as we've studied this book that God's people sin. God raises up oppressors to, to in some sense, punish them and, and, and to judge them. But God's people cry out and God in his loving grace and mercy rises up a judge and a deliverer. And there's peace and healing throughout the land. And when we started this whole section on Samson a few weeks ago, we saw that that God's people had sinned. And that he had raised up an oppressor in the Philistines over Israel. But we also saw that they have not cried out to God. And so, this time, the enemy is now encamped all around them. Where literally the only thing that Judah can see is oppression and slavery. The enemy is all around them. They, can't, they can't, can't get away from them. And you can almost see in their complaint about the Philistines threatening Lehi, just kind of this, this weak, all right, Philistines, what do you want now? Whatever it is, we'll do it. We just, just, just don't want to fight. Just, just tell us what you want. And you see a people that are, that are worse than defeated. They're actually indifferent. It, they make it clear they have no fight left for the Philistines. And so they don't even see any possibility that their situation could change or improve. So they just submit. And like I said, Judah doesn't cry out to God. They don't choose to rally behind Samson, who's, who started this battle. And, and, and they're just lethargic and in some sense indifferent. And while they're not, they're not totally indifferent, though, we see in, in, in verse 9, sorry, verse 11 rather, that they rally an army. In fact, they rally an army of 3,000 men, which is 10 times larger than, than the army that Gideon used just a few generations ago to, to, to free uh, God's people. This is an impressive force. And they're ready. These men are ready to march into battle. And they march to go find Samson. And so... Judah is so blind by decades of oppression that they couldn't see that they're finally going to be delivered from slavery if they just get on board the right team. What God, or who God rather, sends as deliverance, they actually see Samson as a threat to peace. See, they are so comfortable and enslaved by the Philistines that they just don't want to rock the boat. They can't even imagine anything beyond the status quo. They don't think that salvation is even something that is possible for them. They are, in some sense, hopeless. Some of us this morning are coming in, and the weight of sin and oppression has been on us for years and decades, whether we know it or not. And we come to Jesus, and we look, and we think that things are hopeless. Nothing can change. We look at our hearts. Maybe we look at our marriages. We look at at, at our finances. We look at the world around us, and we think we are powerless to change this. In some sense, we're right, but in some sense, we're we're hopeless. When we begin to adopt Judah's slogan, this is always the way things have been. This is always the way things are going to be. And so my question for you this morning, as you really start to search your heart in this, let's engage with the text a little bit, is what 
area of sin or oppression has encamped in your head or heart that just seems that there's no way to avoid or overcome. Everywhere you turn, it's just there. It's with you. It's weighty. You can't even hardly breathe. What areas of your life that God has called you to faithfulness or to act, have you stopped fighting and begun acting as hopeless? That's where Judah's at. Like I said, they're on the march. They do get to Samson. And when they do, they declare their allegiance to the Philistines. And and, and this is interesting because when they're finally ready to fight, they're not ready to fight for their freedom. They're actually fighting for their continued oppression. They have, this is Judah. I mean, at the beginning of Judges, Judah was, was the tribe, the noble tribe, leading the fight against oppressors like the Philistines. They were the ones that were the stalwarts. And now they are just spineless, faithless, weak collaborators with the enemy. That's all they are. They aren't ready to fight against sin. They're actually now prepared to fight for sin. They've chosen a battle, and, and it's with Samson. And this is sad for Samson in some sense because where former judges were able to rally God's people to overthrow the oppression, Judah's mad at Samson. They see Samson as against them. I mean, it's clear. They say, what have you done to us? Samson hasn't done anything to them. Samson torched the Philistines' field. He struck down the Philistine army. He hasn't done anything to Judah, but they identify with their oppressors. And so Judah condemns Samson's actions. You don't speak for us. Kind of a Philistine bigot. Maybe you're Philistinophobic in some sense, Samson. You're a little too much. We want some distance between you and us. And so they're they're asking, why do you even have to stir this up? Everything's peaceful with the Philistines if you just don't make them mad. And so, this happens to us. We're Judah in some sense. Judah has been confronted with sin. They've been faithless. And here's somebody faithful that wants them to start fighting their sin. And so, I want you to ask yourself again, when you're confronted by others with sin in your life, do you fight with them or do you start fighting your sin? I'll tell you what this looks like for in my life specific with with parenting. My wife and I are very clear on what our expectations are for how we parent our kids. Five kids, and the biggest thing that we struggle with and hold on to is we need to be patient and gracious with how we address them, particularly when they're out of bounds or when they need some correction. And I struggle with that because I I tend to be a a little hot-tempered at times. And so my wife... Is very gracious to me and does not want to see me sin against my kids by maybe exacerbating them or making them upset or feel burdened. So she lets me know, whoa, you were a little, little loud there. Gosh, did you see you just kind of crushed one of your kids' spirits and now they don't want to talk to you? And, and yet, sadly, what usually happens for me is I start my legal defense team on all the ways I was gracious to them leading up to when I finally yelled. And so I'm not fighting my sin. I'm just actually arguing with her. And by God's grace, there's times that there is, there is victory. And I, I get to actually say, okay, wow, and I sit down with my kids. And if I've sinned against you, please forgive me. Tara, thank you for, for pointing that out. But it's a struggle. We want to fight with the person, not fight with our sin. And that's sad. So we get back to Judah. They're given a savior. 
But they bind up that Savior. They deliver him to the Philistines because they feared and respected their oppressors more than the Savior that God has sent them. See, Judah loves the world. And they love bondage in some sense, even more than freedom that comes with being with God. And so they see God's enemies now as their righteous lords. They are so quick to reject God. They don't even give God a thought. And yet they don't even take a moment to pause and consider whether they should reject uh, the Philistines or be faithless to the Philistines. And so for Judah, Samson is the enemy, and the Philistines are the Savior that's going to restore peace. That's, That's their gospel. And so something very dark happens to us as God's people when we go from passively tolerating sin to maybe participating or even sometimes celebrating sin to when we finally get to the point where we're ready to fight for sin. We're called to something different. See, when it comes to sin or evil in our lives as individuals or even forms of of cultural, maybe even societal sins we see outside, God has not called us to negotiate with or sympathize or collaborate with our sin. He calls us to wage war against our sin. That's what he calls us to. But Judah, they're clear. They're not going to kill Samson, right? They, they're just going to deliver him over to be killed. They're not going to do the dirty work. It's, it's, they're going to sacrifice him to the Philistines to make peace. And sadly, I think in some ways, something very similar is happening right now with churches and with God's people. When we take gifts that God has given us, we take clear teaching that God has given us and we bind it up and we deliver it over to the world because the world finds what is in this book to be offensive. It's, it's timely because it's happening right now in our state in some sense. Bear with me for the next few minutes. It's going to get uncomfortable. There's an issue on the ballot in this state called Referendum 74. If Referendum 74 is approved, it would legalize what we refer to as so-called same-sex marriage in the state of Washington. As an eldership, and I say that because I don't want you to think I'm going rogue here today, as an eldership, we are in agreement and in unity that we believe strongly that this is in direct opposition to the Bible's clear teaching about what marriage is and what it is not. And so we recognize that not every church is called to fight a battle on this issue, and that we're not going to lead this battle. This is not, this is not the, the big flag that we fly. We fly the flag of Jesus. But we will support churches and Christians who do want to fight this battle. And we do encourage Christians, encourage people to vote in a way that honors biblical teaching and definition of marriage. So what we're not doing is we're not knocking on doors. We're not marching. We're not putting on bumper stickers or buying airtime or anything like that on this issue. But what we have done is written out a very clear statement on the Bible's teaching and encouraging people to engage with that teaching and vote their conscience, which we hope would be to affirm the biblical definition of marriage and sexuality. And we put it out on Facebook this week. Some of you are friends, friends with us on Facebook and like us on Facebook, and you, maybe you saw it, and we put it up on our blog, and it's on our website, so people can see this. It is public. They can see it if they want to look. And the reason we released this statement 
was to educate people about what the Bible teaches and, and on these issues, but it's also in response to the fact that right now on local television, we are all inundated with images of men and women as Christian pastors saying, the Bible says you should affirm and, and promote R74. The Christian thing to do is to approve and, and affirm R74. And you have to know that as a church, as elders, if people want to say the Bible teaches X or the Bible uh, teaches Y or Christians should do X or Y and we find it in conflict with what the Bible actually teaches, that we have a right and a responsibility to stand up and hold up God's word as a mirror and say, no, it doesn't say that. And so we hold up biblical truth in the same way we would with the, the prosperity gospel you see on Christian television or any, any cult or any other uh, perversion of God's word or the gospel that people twist it in order to help their own personal or corporate desires. And I want you to know that as elders, we have not taken lightly putting our church's position out, especially on a medium like Facebook. Have you ever gotten into a fight with somebody on Facebook before? It never goes well, right? And Facebook in particular, that's the public square. For us as elders, we have dozens and dozens of friends and family who are in homosexual relationships that they would call marriage. We have dozens of friends who identify themselves as homosexuals. We have hundreds and hundreds of of friends that do not agree and actively disagree with our churches and the Bible's teaching on this issue and are not supportive of us taking the stand. We didn't expect this to be popular with the world. We or even easily understood by people who don't identify with and love the Jesus of the Bible. And like I said, it's written primarily for people who know and love Jesus and want to understand what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality. See, culture preaches. Politicians preach. The media preaches. Interest groups and individuals preach. And so as a church, we preach. I'm also very sensitive as a pastor who has good friends that have come out of decades of a homosexual lifestyle, have even come out of decades of being with a homosexual partner who now want to identify with Jesus more than their sexuality. I've walked with them in some sense, and I know that it's hard and it's a difficult road, just as it was for me to walk away from a decade of sexual sin and promiscuity and start faithfully following Jesus. It's not easy. It's... I want people to have hope. To borrow from a popular campaign of the world, it gets better. As you walk with Jesus and your joy is found more than it is in sex or in food or in drink or relationships or your job or experiences or any other thing that you identify yourself with, we recognize as well that this is not just a theological issue. It's not just a political issue. It's not just a societal issue. For many people that we know and love and care about, this is a very deeply personal issue. And so our greatest hope is that all people would know Jesus, that all people would know Jesus loves them and loves them enough to die on the cross for their sin, and that all people would know that God sees sin seriously enough that he had Jesus there to die in our place. And we'd also hope that we would all recognize that all people are created in the image and likeness of God and deserve and are worthy of respect. 
And that all people have a fallen, sinful nature that manifests itself differently for each and every one of us so that every person in this room, myself included, every person out of this room and in the world is a sinner in need of fresh grace of God. And that all sin, sexual or otherwise, separates people from God. There is no special class of sin. Know that. There's just sin and Jesus and God. That's it. And so we need all people, all people, all people to turn from sin and turn towards Jesus who by his sacrificial death pays the price for our sin. And through his resurrection gives us the offer and the joy and the hope of new life with God. All people, all people need to find their primary identity in Jesus. And so on this issue, as any other issue, as Christians... We are ambassadors of God's kingdom to this world. And so we also are stewards who are given a vote and are to steward our vote as wisely as we would any of our other resources or gifts God has given us. And so we encourage Christians who are able to vote to vote to reject our 74. But I want you to know that whether it's rejected, we will not celebrate, If it is approved, we will not fall into despair because our hope is not in the law. Our hope is not in legislation. It is not in leaders. Our hope is in the fact that in Israel there's an empty tomb and seated on the throne is King Jesus. That's where our hope is at. So if you're able, put this in a little box. Let's pick it up. Let's put it up on the shelf. Pull it back out on your car ride home. Maybe at Road Group, you can come to Bible and Ballot tonight. We can unpack this a little bit more. Let's put this back on the shelf, and let's get back to our hearts. See, Judah, like I said, they bound up God's truth and handed it over to the world. They're God's people. If you're a Christian today, you're God's people. But yet, each one of us, in some sense, has taken a gift or a teaching from God, and we've bound it up, and we've handed it over to the world. So that's my question for you. What have you taken that God has given you, bound it up and handed over to the world? Where have you been silent when God has called you to speak? Where have you been passive or lethargic when God has called you to act? Where have you acted wrongly that God has told you to fight righteously? Because it's easy to think of big, large, distant, in some sense for some of us, societal sins, it's incredibly difficult to search our own hearts and see that they're just as dark and in just as much need of God's grace. So let's bring it back. Let's get back to to Samson, okay? Samson is, like we said, uh, like Jesus in some sense, that he is bound up by his people that he was sent to save, just like Jesus was handed over by the Jews to the Romans, and, and Samson's rejected by his people, And they're given to the oppressor, in this case the Philistines, so the Philistines will do the dirty work of execution. See, God's people, they're not going to have anything to do with it. But but we'll let let the, the Philistines do it. And so Samson submits to the plan of the people he's trying to save. And he goes down quietly in ropes to Lehi, just like a lamb to slaughter, just like Jesus quietly went to the cross. And what at this point in the story, looks like absolute certain defeat 
is the beginning of a massive victory. And so we come to verse 17, sorry, verse 14 rather. And the Philistines, for the first time, they see Samson. They've got the number one guy on their terrorist watch list in their hands. They have their Osama bin Laden right there. And they are so excited. And they let out this big whoop. And they are ready to have Samson as their helpless prey and end this and bring justice to the Philistines once and for all. And yet something miraculous happens. They, the Philistines have forgotten God. And they've forgotten God because their gods are powerless and faithless to help them when they're in trouble. But God is not faithless to help his people. And all of a sudden, we see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Here is God's faithful spirit. And he comes and he melts off the ropes off of Samson. Samson grabs um, this, this piece of, um, of, of donkey dentures, and he goes and he slays down a thousand Philistines. Certain Philistine success is now an absolute, total defeat. And what I think is interesting about the fact he kills a thousand men, that's a third as many people as Judah had in their army. Judah could have taken him out. This is not an, an impressive force by comparison. And they, they fail, like I said, to act. But God uses an individual like Samson and a, and a donkey bone to shame this, this military. It's like, like what he says in 1 Corinthians where God says, God chooses what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. So these Philistines who started off seeing Samson being boastful and in a celebratory mood, they, their mouths are closed and they are silent before the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And they are powerless to do anything. And so God is using Samson to defeat the enemy. And in doing so, he's redeeming his people from slavery. See, when, when you are a slave and you have a slave master, your freedom comes with a price. And your slave master has to be defeated. And so redemption, being redeemed, often requires violence. And so I want you to have a picture of Jesus that is not just passive, but one who is violently attacking the oppression and sin of this world, specifically Satan, sin, and death. That is why Jesus came. We're going to go through three sections of Scripture here. 1 John 3.8, you can put that up. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Violent redemption. Next verse, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace, oh, yes, peace, please, will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God crushes Satan, and it's our grace. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 57, he crushes death. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are under the oppression and slavery of sin, know that real peace can only come through victory. And that Jesus, while he comes to to violently overthrow the oppressors, in God's God's economy and in God's gospel and in God's grace, Jesus endures violence on our behalf. And he endures it on the cross to free us from slavery 
There's an awesome picture of this in, in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, came as a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Judah, God's people, has been in life long slavery. Some of us have been in lifelong slavery. And Jesus comes enduring violence on the cross to conquer Satan's sin and death so that we can be freed slaves. More than that, He gives us victory. And for Samson, when, when the battle's over and the victory's won, you see Samson kind of proclaim the good news of the gospel of Samson in verse 16. He sings this, this kind of song or this declaration. And, and in it, um, you should see that it's a little cantankerous, but the Hebrew word for donkey and heap are actually spelled the same. So they would have heard this song kind of poetically. It would have been, with the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass. It's catchy, right? You can remember that for a while. And, and, and so we're reminded of Jesus, though. That when Jesus conquers sin, he doesn't use a jawbone or something as foolish as that. No, he just uses the cross, a Roman weapon of execution. And in doing so, he makes the weapons of this world and the gods of this world and the leaders of this world look utterly ridiculous as he steps off that cross and slays billions of idols. And then he proclaims a gospel on that cross that says, It is finished! That is victory, and it's glorious. And so they named the site of this battle Ramoth Lehi, which means Jawbone Hill, so that all little Israelite boys and girls will look to that hill and know that God's Savior delivered them on that day and granted them a victory. And that's why we teach our little boys and little girls and our big boys and big girls to look at the cross on Calvary Hill as the site of the great victory. And so... Samson's there. Victory's won. The battle's over. And he is weak and he is thirsty. He needs something else. It's not enough to just win. The victory's great, but we still need life. He still needs life day by day, even after the major threat of the Philistines has been neutralized. And so while Samson, like I said, he foreshadows Jesus, he is not God. He's still human. And it's after the battle not before, not even during, that Samson finally cries out to God. God saved Samson without Samson even saying a word. But here he is now, and he cries out to God. And in doing so, he says, he praises God for his salvation. He says, you've given this great salvation to God's people. That's amazing. See, what happened to Jawbone Hill isn't just this, this personal vendetta for Samson. It's actually God's victory for his, his whole people. And so we see that while Judah was unwilling to fight for themselves, God is still loving. He's still merciful. He's still gracious. And he's gracious to Judah. And so they get salvation and they enjoy the fruit of God's victory despite their unfaithfulness. And praise God, despite our unfaithfulness, we still get the fruit of God's victory. That's the gospel. Judah didn't do anything worthy of earning God's deliverance and salvation. God just gives it graciously through Samson. So like I said, Samson cries out. He 
He's thirsty. He needs to be saved just as much after the battle as he did during the battle. Because Samson's like us. He's, he's not self-sufficient. He's, he, he acknowledges his dependence on God. We all need to acknowledge our dependence on God. And in doing so, he desperately cries out to God. We all need to desperately cry out to God, sustain me. And that's what, that's what Samson does. And God is faithful to answer that call. He splits open a hollow place, it says. It's actually the Hebrew word for molar. So it's actually like out of a molar of the jawbone springs forth life, springs forth water. And water flows out to save Samson. In the same way that when Israel was brought out of Egypt and brought into the desert, God split open the desert and gave them water. Psalm 81.10 says it this way, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's victory from slavery. And God goes on and he says, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That is sustenance. And that's why we look at Jesus' blood as the same thing. It's what washes away our sin, and yet it's also what offers us fresh grace and sustains us through our life. See, God has delivered us from slavery. He's, he's, he's won the big battle, but he also cares about the little, everyday, lesser needs. And so we get this faithful Holy Spirit that, that comes to us through God's word as living water that, that refreshes and revives us. And so they rename, or they add a name rather, to Jawbone Hill, El Hickory, which means caller's spring, which means everyone who calls on the name of the Lord gets refreshment. So they're not going to look at this hill and just see the victory. They're going to see that it's God that sustains them day by day by day by day. He saves and sustains all who cry out for mercy and grace. If you are still defeated, if you are still in slavery or in bondage, today is your day to call out to God, win the battle for me on the cross. Sustain me through what the cross has done. Because maybe for some of you, your battle or your victory was, was years ago or even decades ago, but you just come weak and thirsty. And so we'll see that, that Samson... The chapter ends with, with Samson um, uh, being a judge over Israel for 20 years, and it says the Philistines are still kind of there. Right? There's this great victory, but it's not total victory. Life is still difficult. God still needs to sustain. And we'll see God's total victory next week. But for this week, my call, my plea to you is to run to this communion table to see it as that spring of water in the desert, to see Jesus' blood as what refreshes and revives us, to see the blood of the cross as that spring of water that in the midst of battle saves us and throughout our daily lives sustains us. We see Jesus' broken body in the bread and that we would just cry out to God and thank him and see the cross through communion as both our victory and our sustenance. We're also going to give our tithes and our offerings, because we're going to remember that even when we are faithless, God has been faithful to provide us with all things. And we are going to sing.
man, we are going to sing, and we're going to sing songs of victory and songs of freedom, praising our king that conquered the enemy and freed us from slavery because we are, if we are in Christ, a free people, and that is the good news of the gospel.